welcome to another episode of Untrue Crime, where fiction meets felonies. I'm Alex. And I'm Belle. Today's episode includes content warnings for stalking, kidnapping, gore, and child murder. This is your fair warning that this podcast uses explicit language before someone walks in at the wrong time. As a last warning, today's episode includes stalking, kidnapping, gore, and child murder. Let's get this started, shall we? We shall. It was the night before Christmas, and all through the town, few people were stirring, let alone out and about. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, but St. Nicholas soon would be there. Many children were nestled. This is not original writing. No, it's not. But I think everyone knows that. Wee woo, wee (laughs) woo. Not not our work alert. (laughs) No, I think everyone knows that, though. That's a very common, uh... Christmas Listen, poem. I just wanted to give that disclaimer. Okay, okay, okay. Many children were nestled all snug in their beds on December 24th, 2019, in the small town of Frankenmurth, Minnesota, right here in our world. However, four of them never saw Christmas morning. Jack Brown was 10 years old, Eloise Williams was 9 years old, Susan McAllister was 11 years old, and Bailey Parker was 5 years old. First person to realize something was wrong was the father of Bailey Parker, five. Her mother wasn't in the picture. Instead, she lived in a small duplex with her father, who worked tirelessly. He wasn't able to be around much, but when he was, she was happy to be with him. They were thick as thieves. Mr. Parker had managed to get Christmas off for the first time in two years, much to his daughter's excitement. There wasn't much in the way of gifts ready for her, but they were going to spend the holiday together, and Mr. Parker had saved for a couple of toys for her. She wasn't as much of an early riser as she spent most of her day at school and daycare. This meant that she slept soundly through most nights. Therefore, Mr. Parker wasn't alarmed when he didn't hear Bailey when his alarm went off. He didn't want to wake her, knowing that she needed her rest, but he had said it in case she was up and didn't want to wake him so that he could get up too and make the most of the day. With the house quiet, he went to go peek in on her to see that she was okay, something he often did. However, her bedroom was empty and her nightstand was knocked over. Worried, he looked around but couldn't find her anywhere, and when the neighbors hadn't seen her either, he called 911. Susan McAllister was a very level-headed little girl at the age of 11. Her teachers always said that she was a pleasure to have in a class. Me too. She was stable, she thought deeply about things, and she listened well to her parents in general. There were a lot of things that she was in charge of around the house considering her age, but she did her chores without much complaining. When her mom told her to, she played with her baby sister, moved the laundry from the washer to the dryer, and put toys away. She was, of course, still a child, but she was very mature for her age, if standoffish. Susan always set an alarm, even on weekends and holidays, and had her parents set one, too, when it was important to her that they be up. Christmas was no exception. So when their alarms went off, Mr. and Mrs. McAllister were baffled that Susan wasn't in the living room with her baby sister on her hip already. She was nowhere to be found, but what her parents did see was a new trail of footprints to the back door, which they never used and was usually left unlocked. They called the police in tears. The third victim to be noticed missing was nine-year-old Eloise Williams. As a tradition, her parents woke up their daughter with breakfast in bed before presents. It was a tradition they started with her older sister, who, by this date, had gone off to college. They continued it with Eloise, who loved it. They woke, made her pancakes, and went upstairs to deliver them to her, but of course, she wasn't there. She wasn't anywhere. 
While looking for her, they discovered the basement hopper window had been pried open and there was a mess below it, as if someone or something had come through and bumped into things. While Mrs. Williams was in hysterics, Mr. Williams called 911. The parents of 10-year-old Jack Brown were always awoken bright and early on Christmas morning by their son, demanding they come downstairs so that he could open his presents so they didn't set an alarm. They didn't need one. They were well off and he was the only child, so he always had a grand Christmas morning. Under the tree lay every item on Jack's Christmas list and more. It wasn't hard to see why he was such a fan of the holiday. When Mrs. Brown opened her eyes and realized that Jack had not woken them, she shook Mr. Brown awake, concerned. Her husband didn't think anything of it and wanted to continue sleeping in. He said it was a Christmas miracle and that they should take advantage of it. But Mrs. Brown was too worried and got up, going down the hall of their upstairs to Jack's room. His bed was empty and the sheets were tossed aside as if he had sprung out of bed to come get them. She searched the household for him, puzzled, but he wasn't in the house no matter where she looked. Horrified, she woke Mr. Brown and they called the police. The police in this town rarely saw violent crime. There were some muggings and domestic violence, but what they first thought was the kidnapping of a child? No, never. Surely no one in their town could kidnap a child. So when the police arrived to speak to Mr. Parker about his daughter, Bailey, being gone, the first assumption was that she had run away. They began talking to him, trying to get a sense of what could have disgruntled his daughter. Mr. Parker begged them to listen to him when he said that she would never run away, but they pointed out his lack of ability to be home to possibly be a reason for her discontent. They said that he should arrange a search party and that they'd send out a patrol car to look for her. After all, they reasoned, a five-year-old couldn't have gotten far in the cold and the snow in the middle of the night. You'd be shocked at what five-year-olds can do in the cold. Those little yeah. wild children, they, they, they love it. I don't they know do. why they thrive as such in the cold, but they go hog wild. Five-year-olds, though, are also notorious for not wanting to put on their coats and their boots. They just kind of want to go right out into the snow. As someone who has worked with kids, trying to stuff them in their coats for recess when there is six inches of snow on the ground is difficult. They're all like, I don't need a coat. It's not cold. And then they get out there and they're cold within like two minutes. And you're like, yeah, this is why coats are required. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if a child that was five ran away without a coat and then thus did not get very far before being like, I'm cold. cold. But usually they turn around at that point because they need to then yeah. complain to someone that they're cold. They need to express they that love they to do cold. that. They and love the complain that they're cold, as though there's anything I can do about the temperature. And they can't imagine why they are cold. And it's like, maybe, maybe you should have put on your coat and gloves. But this is not... Thing, what, why, why is it so cold out here? It's a nice rank. <laughs> you're in a nice rank. Why are my feet cold? <laughs> because you're wearing sneakers and you're shuffling through the snow. Ms. Miss DeWing, I can't stand up. I don't have gloves on. You took them off. Miss Parker, in my, my hands are cold. That's because you put them in a puddle of melted snow and now they're soaked through. Well, can you make them warm again? No. No, I can't. This is this is not children's slander, by the way. We we love our no, kids. It's just we that do. We love our kids. They are just. Like, 
Well, so sometimes their sometimes. reactions to the cold is very irritating, especially when it's <laughs> expected. Like when you are in the middle of winter or at an ice rink. Mm-hmm. So they're they're a little silly and goofy, but that's just because they're kids, so. Yeah. It's cute when they come back anyways, where it's like, <laughs> oh, Mr. Wang, I have my gloves mm-hmm. on. It's like, yay! Good job! I'm so glad that your dad could put those back on you because I don't know why I couldn't. (laughs) On their way back to the station, they were notified of a second call and were sent to the home of Susan McAllister. Now, they realized something was a little off. A little. The footprints... (laughs) Hmm. Something might be A bit of a head scratcher. I'm, I'm kind of thinking that something might be wrong. The footprints would have to be analyzed, they said, to be sure that they belonged to someone else. But it was admittedly odd that two children within a 30-minute drive of one another went missing on the same night. They said nothing of Bailey Parker to the McAllisters and began increasing search efforts. Two children were now missing, with seemingly no connection to one another. I love that it was like, we have to analyze these footprints to make sure that they didn't belong to anyone. We have to make sure that these adult footprints are not of the children that are the parents that live there oh that's true how do we you know like how do we how do we i mean obviously the parents are saying these are new footprints but how do how do we really know that they are new footprints like we're just going off of the parents memory of when did i last go outside you know yeah it was sure that something serious had happened when mr williams contacted it was sure then that's what made it serious Man, the first missing child should have been serious. Hey, my kid is missing on Christmas morning. She's someone else's gift right now. You know what? That's... I actually have to get home to my wife and kids who are happy and at home. Mm-hmm. So, so, so it's not serious. Child. Well, the first one, they, they, I don't understand why the first instinct when a five-year-old child goes missing in the middle of the night with seemingly no trace of leaving and there was no issue between her and her father. They're like, yeah, she definitely ran away and it's not a big deal. We'll just like send out a car to like drive around. You should organize your own search party. I feel like that should be illegal, but they are the cops. Yeah. The break-in was clear as day, and they headed back to the station after meeting with the Williamses to try and figure out what was going on. Their house happened to fall about halfway between the Browns and the McAllisters, meaning their kidnapper had been making their way across the town. While brainstorming, they got a call from the Browns, who lived on the east end of the line the police had been sketching out across the town, 15 minutes from the Williams residence. The Browns insisted the last time they had a dispute with their son was almost a month ago when they chewed him out over backtalking. He had purposefully shattered two of their expensive vases from a trip to Japan. They grounded him for two days, but there hadn't been a conflict since then. It didn't make sense. Jack was ten. If he was going to run away about that, he would have done it already. And he wouldn't do it right before Christmas when he surely knew he was going to get what he wanted. Also, kids do not run away that often. This is not a super common occurrence. I ran away regularly in my childhood, but... Oh, well, the kids that typically (laughs) end up staying run away are are teenagers. That's true. That's true. Yeah, children, children, typically when they run away, they don't get far and they turn around. 
they walk out of the house they they stomp a few streets over and then realize that they need a peanut butter sandwich with the crust cut off and then turn back around and hope that their mom didn't notice that they had walked out of the yep. front door <laughs> here's a story time one time when i ran away as a child oh over i don't know what something stupid probably i packed up my suitcase and i marched about a two-minute drive away, still in the same neighborhood. And I decided, this is the place where I will spend the rest of my life. I will set up camp here, and I will live here for the rest of my life. And that place was in a neighbor's yard while he was mowing it. And so I sat down in their yard, and I thought, this is where I will stay. And my parents, after a while, started driving around the neighborhood to find me. And they did. And they stopped, and they were like, Alex, it's time to get in the car. Like, we need to go home. And I was like, no, I'm mad at you. I'm never coming home. I'm going to live right here. And the guy who was mowing his yard was like, yeah, kid, you got to go. You can't stay here. So I got in the car, and I went home. Yeah, that sounds like you. Yeah. But it is also, I think it's a good point that Jack... Well, if the last time there was a conflict, because kids typically run away when they're kids' kids over conflict with their parents, like being mad at their parents or upset about something. If their last conflict was about a month ago, he wouldn't run away now. Ten-year-olds do not have that kind of time for grudges. They do not, no. They will act, they're kind of like cats where you have to like, you have to shout at them at the moment that they get on something they're not supposed to because you can't punish them later because they won't understand why you're punishing them. It's the same kind of thing. The kids will not understand that there was a conflict a month ago and they can still be upset about that at about that point in time. Unless, of course, they've just decided to actually hate the other person for, and they're just mad at them indefinitely. But there there is parents, so that's hard to do Mm -hmm. when you're 10. Or ever, frankly. Yeah. Someone had taken the children, they were sure. So detectives (gasps) went back out to each house to search more thoroughly while a team back at the station worked on trying to pull traffic camera tapes. They started at the east end with the Browns. The Brown household was large, but they found the smashed window to a pantry on a lower level eventually. The Browns had opted to go to a relative in town's house during the search after urging by the police, and that turned out to be the best option, because when the police went to the mantle, They took down Jack Brown's stocking and found all ten of his fingers and toes inside, wrapped neatly in patterned paper with a bow on the bundle. How'd they know it was his? They keeping track of his fingers and toes? What do you mean? What other ten-year-old's fingers and toes would be inside Jack Brown's house? Don't know. There's an eleven-year-old. In a different house? But, yeah, but all of them went missing. What if you mixed fingers? Okay, all right, I guess it could have... The DNA testing in the end confirmed that they were Jack Brown's fingers, but, you know, when they initially pulled the stocking down, they also had an inkling that they were Jack Brown's fingers and toes since they were inside of his house. I don't know. I feel like it'd be really weird to organize them. Oh, it's oh, weird. I didn't say it's not weird. It's weird to cut off children's fingers and toes and wrap them in a, with a bow, too, but... <laughs> Who has the time? (laughs) I barely want to wrap real Christmas presents because I'm bad at wrapping them. I don't want to wrap. I like wrapping Christmas presents, but I don't think I could wrap a finger and toe. 
Well, they are, I guess they're not loose. They're in like a little bundle and then the, it's still nasty. Um, but yeah. All right, continue reading. There was hope that Jack was still alive until they realized the paper matched some of the presents under the tree. One by one, they unboxed pieces of Jack Brown. Fearing Merry words, Christmas! Happy Holidays! Fearing the worst, they radioed officers- Fearing the worst! <laughs> the worst has come, people. The worst has definitely come for Jack Brown, but who knows about the other kids? Yeah, I do. I know I what happens like, to the other kids. And you all will too. I, I know you know. I know. But I feel like, yeah, fearing the worst. But also, the worst has occurred. A child is dead and disfigured and now in different boxes. Well, the only thing worse than a child being chopped into pieces in Christmas presents is four children being chopped into pieces in Christmas presents. That's fair. They radioed officers at the other houses to remove the parents right away. They went next to the home of Eloise Williams, finding her in an identical state. Susan McAllister suffered the same fate. It wasn't until they reached the home of Bailey Parker once more that something changed. There were no pieces of Bailey in the stockings, nor in the boxes under the sparkling Christmas tree strung with popcorn and handmade ornaments. She was genuinely gone. What they found in her stocking instead of her digits was a note. It was written in swirly letters. Quote, I didn't want to do it. She had done nothing wrong. St. Nicholas. End quote. Upon another inspection of the Parker household, one detective noted something off about Bailey's room. He approached the little family's toy elf. Like many parents, Mr. Parker moved it around the house at night to keep the magic of Christmas going. The most common superstition is that the elf would watch the kids and report their behavior to Santa back at the North Pole so that he knew who was naughty and who was nice. The tiny camera that had been implanted into its eye made sure of that. Identical elf toys were found at the other residences with a GPS tracker stuffed inside. In the coming days, a recall was made on the product. Ten toys were found to have had cameras and trackers added to them at some point. All ten were in this town, and all ten had been on the shelf at a local store. A feed was traced as the traffic camera data came back. A person had driven to each of the ten houses. That was about all that could be pulled from those cameras. But they weren't the only cameras about and the elves that had been used to spy on these children were ultimately what led to a better understanding of the case. The feed was traced back to a computer in the home of Madge Dill, a 90-year-old woman. She had three sons who visited her frequently to take care of her, as she was unable to get out of bed most days. When the police entered Madge's home, they encountered the eldest of her sons, who was immediately put under arrest. The computer was found and the footage combed through. Snippets of it were saved to various folders named after all of the children across the ten homes. There was also a list of names in a document. They were the names of the children across the ten homes sorted into two categories, naughty and nice. There were only three names on the naughty list, Jack Brown, Susan McAllister, and Eloise Williams. All other names, including Bailey Parker's and Susan's baby sisters, were on the nice list. Jack Brown's folder had one starred video, one of him breaking the vases from his family's trip to Japan. 
Susan McAllister's had a video starred of her arguing with another child during a playdate about her toys and then pushing her, causing her to hit her head on the armrest of the sofa. Eloise's starred video was of her accidentally breaking an ornament on the tree and hiding it beneath the tree skirt rather than fessing up to breaking it. The children for the nice list didn't all have starred videos, such as Susan's baby sister. I've been Eloise before. I just, like, I haven't, like, hidden a broken ornament, but I've broken things and then hurriedly cleaned it up, knowing that my parents wouldn't care. They just care that I'm safe, alive, and healthy. And they break glasses, too. But I I definitely was that kid that was like, oh, no, I have to hide it. I, as a child, broke on purpose an ornament of... I was a big fan of the wonderful Wizard of Oz as a child, and we had an ornament of Dorothy, and as a kid, I wanted to know what was inside the ornament, so I enlisted my cousin to break her to see if she had bones. Oh. Yeah. Bones. Childhood curiosity, everyone. Investigators went to the other 10 homes, which they could identify thanks to the trackers and the traffic cameras. All of the nice list children, besides perhaps Bailey Parker, were unharmed. What was interesting about them was something investigators hadn't noticed before considering they hadn't been Christmas shopping for the murdered children. Some of the presents were missing from the houses of the naughty list kids, one for each nice list kid. These presents had been left on the doorsteps of the nice list children's houses. The elves were collected from their houses for evidence, and the rattled families went on about their days. What happened to Cole? Like, well, this is a really special St. Nicholas. <laughs> he does things a little differently. He's not like the other St. Nikolai. He's, he's, uh, he's special. Not he's like other Santas. Again, though, Bailey was the outlier. There were presents on her doorstep. But she was missing. Why? Why were none of the other children on the nice list taken? Why Bailey? What did the note mean? The questions grew. However, the elf had been in her bedroom, and it held the answer. It showed Bailey, who was waiting up. She was beside her window, dressed in a snowman-printed nightgown, seemingly waiting for Santa and his reindeer to arrive. The window of her room faced the front of the duplex she lived in, so she likely saw the car pull up. It wasn't quite a sleigh, but she perked up when she saw the person come out of it. Bailey, whose room was on the ground floor, opened her window. The elf's camera could see the figure of the person coming to her window to speak with her. Her window lacked a screen, and after a while, the person came in, much to the excitement of Bailey Parker. It was clear once he was inside why. He was dressed as Santa Claus. He is However, a different kind of Santa Claus. Man came out pimped in the, the, the whip. Was in a, like, the blinged-out car that Jojo Siwa has. In his hot pink whip, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> However, as they spoke, she became more upset until, eventually, she tried to run away. The man caught her, dragging her out the window with him. Her flailing feet hit the nightstand, causing it to fall over, and after that, the window slammed shut. There were no outdoor cameras by the duplex, meaning that what happened to Bailey after was lost track of, but it's reasonable to assume she was put in the car. Santa came back, though, to write a note on a piece of paper from the kitchen and slip it into her stocking before leaving once more. 
Some traffic cameras caught him driving away, but there weren't tons of them in the city, and his car was lost track of, too. The other sons of Madge Dill were located and arrested, too. They could not meet bail and remained in jail. The town mourned its murdered children, but held out hope for finding Bailey. On January 2, 2020, a little girl was found by hunters in the nearby Minnesota woods who heard calls for help. They took her back to town, and she was identified as Bailey Parker. Unsure of what to do with her, her kidnapper had locked her in a well-constructed hunting blind until he had a plan. She went to the hospital to be taken care of, where she was reunited with her father. Unfortunately, Bailey Parker was unable to identify which of the Dill brothers was her attacker. All three had to be released from police custody without sufficient evidence to hold them. The investigation is ongoing. Two of the brothers are unaccounted for on a Christmas Eve, while the middle brother's alibi was that he was with his mother, Madge Dill, who was unable to confirm or deny this reliably. There isn't much evidence on the table, which is the problem. They can't seem to garner enough evidence to arrest one of them, as they cannot discern which brother did it. The nurse who regularly comes by to check in on Madge insists that the brothers are all very kind and would never harm kids. He is one of the few contacts that the brothers have, as they all are quite reclusive and their only character witness. He also says, however, that he found the youngest of the brothers to be odd, having a fascination with children and childlike items. Despite this, he maintains that none of the Dill brothers would hurt a fly. The police don't believe this. To this day, they are looking into the case, but it seems to be a lost cause at this point. It could be any one of the brothers or none of them. Perhaps old Madge Dill really did disconnect herself from her oxygen tank and chop up children. Smaller questions swirl around the crime itself, too. How was there no blood in the homes of the children that were murdered? How did no one notice the perpetrator installing things into the elves? When were the trackers and cameras installed? Why did some children get a pass on the bad things that they had done since the elf was put up and others did not? And why was Bailey Parker kidnapped? No one knows. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Send in your thoughts, theories, questions, and comments to untruecrimethepodcast at gmail.com, all lowercase, for a chance to be featured at the end of the season during our Q&A. Goodbye and happy holidays! Happy holidays!